HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting healthy food that tastes great. Visit bobsredmill.com today. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the great people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Joan Nathan, an award-winning author of 11 cookbooks, a cooking teacher, and a culinary historian. She's one of the foremost experts on Jewish cooking in America, as well as the global Jewish diaspora. Her latest book, King Solomon's Table, a culinary exploration of Jewish cooking from around the world, has garnered widespread praise, recently winning an IACP Cookbook Award for Best International Cookbook. In today's episode, we'll talk to Joan about how Passover and Easter are cousins, what Joan's cooking for her own family for the holidays, and we'll hear Joan's Julia moment. Keep listening to find out what exactly is a Julia moment. We'll be right back. In our first segment on Inside Julia's Kitchen, as always, we launch the conversation with inspiration from Julia. Today, we're returning to two themes we've covered before. Julia's passion for lifelong learning, which we talked to Kim Severson from the New York Times about in episode two, and in last week's episode nine with Amelia Saltzman about what to eat this spring season, especially since we're coming up to the twin food-centric holidays, Passover and Easter. While Julia didn't tend to put a lot of her focus on holiday food per se, she was focused on learning all she could about where food come from, who eats what, and why. She was also a natural teacher, eager to soak up new information and then share it with her audience. 
Joe Nathan is someone who embodies these exact same characteristics. A lifelong student of food and history, and a natural teacher, eager to share and educate others about the things she's passionate about. Lucky for us, that includes a lot about food, culinary history, and Jewish cooking, which has been perhaps more influential in what constitutes American food than many people realize. Bagels, they're Jewish, right? Well, now they're about as American as a hamburger. I'm delighted Joan could join us today to share her insights about the food story behind and within Eastern Passover, and to take us behind the scenes the fascinating cookbook, King Solomon's Table. Welcome to the podcast, Joan. Well, thank you, Todd. This is really an honor for me. Well, I'm really happy to continue our focus from last week on what to eat and cook in this March-April-slash-Easter Passover holiday season. So I know you've written extensively about the history of the Passover table and how it's been celebrated in different ways by Jewish people the world over. But I think many people aren't aware that the traditions of Passover and Easter are linked, particularly the food uh, traditions. So could we start there? Could you take us through that connection? Well, yeah, actually, I'll, I'll take you even farther back. Passover, before Judaism, was really a spring festival. Spring is when grass grows. Um, when new, new lambs are born, when there's more milk. Um, and these were things, more eggs. Um, and these foods were really, in, you know, this was so much part of life. And at, at the time when they were gods, you would thank gods for bringing them. And, um, and in the Middle East, March is really a time when, when it's very green. Um, so I always think of Christianity as sort of revisionism of Judaism, in a way. And, 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 and both religions accept the same foods for this spring festival. So, for example, uh, the Jews will have on the Passover, um, the Seder table, uh, the Seder plate will have the symbolic foods, one of which is an egg. Um, and then, of course, egg means life. It means the sacrifice in the temple because there's a little bit of, um, we, we make the egg, um, I take a match to it and burn it a little bit. Uh, and we talk about these things, but what's happened is other symbolism is put on them. But these, this is the really ancient symbolism. And because there are so many eggs, of course, Christianity uses all these eggs for Easter eggs. And in Judaism, there's so many eggs that you're eating. We start our Passover Seder with everybody has um, what we call a, a salt water soup, which has been um, changed now, in my, and we put in it a hard-boiled egg. But now, as a result of the research I did for this book, we put it in, we put in it, instead of salt water, a salty spinach, and it's just divine. So it's a, an egg cooked forever. Um, and uh, surrounding it, this bright green, delicious spinach. Um, and I, I was going to return to the old custom, but everybody liked it so much. This is from Corfu, Greece. Well, Joan, could you back up for a second? And um, I like that you went all the way back to the to, to the beginning before Judaism and Christianity and monotheism. But now, now you've leapt ahead to modernizing the Seder. And maybe for those in our audience who might vaguely be aware of what a Passover Seder is, maybe you could just recap what exactly is it. 
originally the Passover Seder was celebrated in Jerusalem, around the hills of Jerusalem. Everybody would slaughter a lamb and have to eat it before sunrise. And this is all in the book of Exodus. They would have to eat bitter herbs, which were the greens growing um, in the spring, as I told you, but they were always bitter, like arugula is a little bitter. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in addition, they would have to eat a, um, an, a, a, an unleavened bread. And there are many reasons for that. But I think that part one reason is that they, when they were leaving Egypt, this is the, what people say that they were when they were slaves in Egypt and they were going to the, the promised land. They didn't have enough time for their bread to rise. But I really don't believe that. I believe that they ate this unleavened bread, which was something that they ate before they went to Egypt. And oh, so that it actually was a food tr- tradition that actually already existed and that just conveniently fit the the slave narrative. Exactly. Exactly. So um, so you're saying this is a spring ritual that existed in the book of Exodus, reflecting a time actually before the Jews fled slavery in Egypt. Right. Exa- yes, exactly. And so in the book of Exodus, it says that you have to eat these three things, and that's all that it says about the Passover Seder. It doesn't even mention the Passover Seder. So... After the destruction of the first temple, what was eaten in on Jerusalem's uh, on the fields of Jerusalem, the hills of Jerusalem, and it, um, the Josephus, the the Roman, actually Jewish historian, described these meals on the hilltops of Jerusalem. So people then returned to their homes to um, have a home service, and so this is the only service the Jews have in their home rather than a synagogue. So mm. it's around your table to remember the exodus. And, and the, the, the most important thing about a Seder, which means order, is that the parents are supposed to tell, tell the tale of the exodus of the Jews. But we, many of us think about the exodus of all people that are hurt wherever they are and their, their fight for freedom and where they're going for freedom. So that what's beautiful about this, the, the Passover Seder, is that you can reinterpret it for generations, throughout mm. the generations. For example, I was at a women's Seder last night, and they had two pairs on the Seder plate, and I couldn't figure out what they were about. And that then the, the leader of the Seder said, these are to show that a pair can be anything. So that, a, in other words, the equality today of same-sex marriages. And people interpret life, daily life, through, through the Seder. And so that it's an ever-changing, yet the same um, story and the same uh, holiday. And you can do the same thing with foods at the Seder, which I'm sure you also do at Easter. But it's really meant to be a time where you can talk about freedom and slavery more than anything else. But, of course, as a food writer, I think about spring and what we're going to have to eat and what the food is going to be. I leave the other, to the other members of my family. Um, they, they work on the, the on the Seder, the theatrics of the Seder, and I work mm. on the food. 
But the but the food because you're kind of talking about the storytelling. So part of for those who haven't been to a seder is there's kind of two big pieces. One is the recounting in some households of tradition, and in other households a new interpretation of the tradition that all happens in a certain order with certain methods, including certain uh, sips of wine and certain prayers before the meal is really served or consumed. Right. But then even the consumption of the meal, especially for someone like you, who who's a cook and knows so much about the food, it has a certain importance, right? I'm sure you place a certain importance on what dishes you serve and why you serve them and Absolutely. even how they will evolve. And, and, and some of the foods are part of the service. For example, there's something called haroset, which is a like paste of nuts and apples and different fruits that people have that Jews have interpreted wherever they live. And I can look at a, 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 a haroset, um, and, it, and it's symbolic of the mortar um, of the, the Jews when they were slaves in Egypt. And, it, it, and according to Rashi, the French-Jewish uh, rabbi, there should be something sweet and something a little vinegary in them. So I've found them from different centuries. I've, this is, of course, not part of the original Seder. This came um, probably during the Babylonian exile and afterwards. But, um, you know, they're delicious. So what... Well, and right, all, none of, just thinking about it now, none of the main ingredients in Haroset are actually particularly spring. I mean, it's either dried fruit, apples, or nuts, none of which are Exactly, at their what peak. they are are the largesse that was dried in the, in the fall. And my guess is, in the ancient world, because I found them from 13th, 14th century, people had cellars um, where they would, you know, they would keep things that were, were dry. I'm Preserve. sure they kept a rotting apple, for example, from um, the fall in the cellar. Or they would have dried apricots, if they were living in the south of France, or chestnuts, if they were living in Italy, you know, different places, and they but set them aside for the Passover Seder so that um, as soon as they were harvested, they would put them together. And I've seen that in India and other places, that the different and, fruits are set aside. And so do you think actually in some ways the, the, the more northern European Ashkenazi tradition of apple, chopped apple-based haroset or the more Sephardic one that involves dried fruits and um, maybe is sweeter and thicker, that those are reflective almost of the holdover from winter and what's stored for winter into what's now coming alive in spring. Absolutely. And, and it's funny you should say that because I've just been doing a lot of reading about that. It was exactly that reason that in, in France is sort of the... Um, the, the Heroset line, that the northern <laughs> French have apples and nuts. The southern French, who many of whom are from North Africa, will have all these other dried fruits in it, fruits in it. and that was the same since about the 13th, 14th century. Now, what's happened on your table? Because growing up, um, I did not know any real Sephardic Jews, and we were always served my family's Heroset recipe, which is quite simple but tasty and is just apples and uh, chopped apples and nuts and a little bit of wine and cinnamon but once you've tasted 
No, it, of course, it's fine. Once you've tasted more Sephardic, Southern Mediterranean, Middle Eastern type harosets that are have a lot more intensity of sweetness and richness and are sometimes like a thick paste, I find it's kind of hard to go back. They're so delicious. So what what's happened with you? Or do you alternate or do you soup both? Or Well, what I have on my table, I have usually five different kinds. And I mark their names. I try to show the diaspora of the Jews through these five different kinds. W- ones that came from Spain are dates and nuts that are like a paste and rolled into little balls. And you find that same exact heroism. It's fascinating. In the early American Jews who came from Brazil, but before that from Portugal, they're, they're in little balls. And to the, in, until the 19th century, um, the New York Times, whenever they mentioned Passover, because they knew some of these old Sephardic Jews, always talked about the Passover balls that were the Herosit. Um, so that what I do is I have, I think this year I'm having a Brazilian one, I'm having a, um, a, a Moroccan one, um, let me think what else I'm having, a, 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 an old French one, and um, apple and nut, which is always the most popular, just like what you had growing up. And then I'll probably have one from Curacao that I like very much that has chess, uh, cherries in it and all kinds of good things. And, so I, and I what, do try what do you, to have five. You, oh, no, I'm going to have a nutless one. That's it this year. Wow. Because oh, yes, so, so many of these, a big... there's so many people with nut allergies, and there's always nuts and neurosis. So yeah. what I do is I put them in little cups, and I put what they're from so that it's something, again, to talk about. You know, to, and, and I think that for me, um, Passover is a learning experience about the food. Because people are so interested, and I'm so interested in the food. So that what I do is I try to have traditional recipes as part of the Passover Seder table. But I also try to have um, one or two new ones each year. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, is the, the value of having six. Is, is that because you think it expands people's horizons beyond whatever preconceptions they have? Yeah, I think it makes them think a little bit. And it's, you know, and they're tasty. <laughs> and they taste good, yeah. So what, what are some of the other dishes that you think people for both Passover, if they celebrate Easter, if they celebrate nothing but spring, what are some of the dishes people might think about serving at this time well, of year? Well, in my house, which might be a dying recipe, I have the day before Passover, I have something called a gefilte fish in. And about four or five women, as many um, burners as I have, come to my house with their gefilte fish for gefilte fish. And we, we make it together in balls or in ovals, actually. And we laugh and we talk. And we do this, we've done this for about a dozen years. And um, it just brings back to all of us great traditions. Now, at the table, none of, most of the kids won't eat it. Most of the adults will. So, it, you know, my kids keep saying, oh, why, why would you do that? Well, I do it because, first of all, I like it. Secondly, my mother-in-law used to do it. And I think that this is a way to carry on the traditions of those who aren't with us anymore and to tell the stories about them. You know, when my mother-in-law used to make it, she would 
First of all, she'd cook it for two and a half hours. These little balls of white fish. Yeah, go back, go back and ex- Joan, go back and explain for people who, again, maybe never been to a seder. Um, what is gefilte fish? It's quite quite a unique thing, and I don't think it's part of the original historical. Right? What tradition does it come from? Okay. Well, actually, in Spain, there were these. It, it, it originated in um, chopped raw fish with a filling of egg onions and breadcrumbs or matzo meal and you would form these and you'd put it in a fish broth and cook it as my mother-in-law did for two and a half hours i cook it for about 20 minutes and um and it was a way in in the in the talmud it says that jews are supposed to have a little bit of fish for friday night and a little bit of garlic and some and also meat uh excuse me beets and these ingredients are supposed to incite the passions because in Jewish law, a man is supposed to give his wife pleasure on Friday night um, on the Sabbath. So uh, this dish was formed so that people could eat it on the Sabbath. You cook it dip before, and then you would eat it, um, and you didn't have to pick at bones or anything, which would constitute work, and it would be eaten cold. So this has become traditional for Eastern European Jews that that really are the majority of Jews in the United States. They they make up about three fourths of all Jews that live here. Um, Sephardic Jews not only don't eat it but disdain it because they think it has no flavor, and yet they have balls that they eat that are much more pungent with cumin and all kinds of spices. Um, I really think that the, the gefilte fish can be very tasty, and it also has memories for so many of us. So that's one other thing that I make. Of course, my kids love my chicken soup with matzo balls, and I put um, fresh ginger and nutmeg. That's a little bit of my change, but not so much of a change in the matzo balls. Everybody loves chicken soup with matzo balls, I think. I think that's, in a way, going to become American, just the way bagels are. <laughs> um, but for many of us, again, it, it connotes a holiday, um, a special occasion, and it's also real comfort food. So I have that, and then I have a big buffet of brisket, um, which is a, you know, a cut that's acceptable um, according to Jewish law because you, can't, you can only eat the four quarters of an animal. And it's mm. sort of tough. So mine that I made, which was 16 pounds, because I'm having 40 people, um, uh. took seven hours just slow braising. <laughs> um, and then I have, I'm going to give the, I have all kinds of salads, cooked salads. Um, one is going to be a pepper, a, pe- a red pepper salad that's been cooked down and, I always have asparagus for the spring, but I make them in a salad so it's easy for me. I have a quinoa, which is now acceptable for Judaism at Passover because it's a grass and it's not um, it, it's not wheat or it, it, it's you can just use it. It's not corn. Of course, the rules of say they're of Passover acceptable food are changing all the time, and mm-hmm. um, I have lots of vegetables. And I'm going to probably also do a chicken. And then for dessert, there are the traditional recipes. Um, 
I always make something called a crimsel, which is a German, like, Passover donut, but it's not, it's with um, crushed matzah and eggs and um, uh, raisins, and I put apricots in and nuts, and it's fried, and that's the last thing I do, and it's something that on, on, I'll do it on Friday afternoon, that my father loved, and it's a time for me to spend thinking about my father. And, you know, we'll have like a, a meringue tort that I tasted this year um, with chocolate in it that was my Danish daughter-in-law's mother's um, recipe. So we're going to include that in the Seder as well from now on because we want Liv to be, feel comfortable. And, um, you know, I, I, if something is good, of course, I have a flourless chocolate tort. And what other, and I always have an almond lemon tort with the lemon curd inside. So if you don't eat it for Passover, then at the, at the Seder, there's enough for the next few days. But, you know, not that, everybody. That, 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 sounds, that sounds to me like the veritable definition of a Passover Seder feast. And, um, making me think uh, I know where I want to go next year for a Passover. But I just want to tell you that my most the most fun of all is what that we've been doing, and we've been doing this Seder for 38 years, is the Passover play that we have every year, which makes our Seder different from everybody else's. And it's the same story. Little baby Moses, big Moses, there's God there, there's director, and all the kids leave probably after the matzo balls, but now a little bit, they start the main course, they leave. And, um, and they put on this play, and it is very funny. And it's the same thing every year, but we all laugh. But it changes a little bit depending on who's at the Seder. Those are all terrific traditions, which we're going to talk a little bit more about. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to talk to Joan about her latest award-winning book. We'll be right back. An indelible childhood memory of mine is the red jar of wheat germ parked in our refrigerator. It was reserved for my parents, and they not only still eat wheat germ as part of their health regime, but they have switched to Bob's Red Mill wheat germ. Wheat germ comes from the heart of the wheat berry and is a good source of folic acid, vitamin E, and thiamine. Add it to your cereal, as my parents do, or smoothies, or your baked goods, as an easy nutrient boost. Visit bobsredmill.com today Use the discount code Julia's Kitchen, one word in all caps, for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products, including wheat germ. If you've never cracked open one of Joan Nathan's books, you're in for a treat. Her writing always takes you on an in-depth journey of discovery, and her recipes really work. Her latest book is truly fascinating exploration of culinary history, traveling all the way around the world, connecting biblical times, as we've just been talking about, all the way back to the present modern times. So, Joan, tell me a little bit more about your inspiration for for writing this book, King Solomon's Table. Well, my inspiration came when I went to India, 
and I went to Cochin and went to the synagogue. And there was a sign that said that Jews had been coming to India since the time of King Solomon. And I went, whoa. And that started me on a journey to learn about the ancient food of the Jews and where it went and how, how, where and how it wandered to what we have of a of, of food that's really hit almost 70 countries around the world and first came to Israel. And now with our immigration opening in 1965 and later, it's really come to this country. So um, it, it was a, you know, a journey to find out what was eaten before Judaism, before Christianity in the Babylonian Empire, and um, and then where it went. And I, you know, I it could have been done about anybody, but I tracked Jews, so I was able to track where this food went through studying Jewish history. And so, what what did you discover? What was the most surprising discovery that really? kind of changed your person. I mean, you started to talk about leavened bread maybe being somewhat of a myth in terms of why it was eaten, but was that one of them or were there others? Well, that, that I had learned before, but I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you something else. One of the things, um, when I was doing research, I found this, uh, a book, a book on cuneiform tablets written in Akkadian from uh, 2500 B.C., and I looked at the book and I wasn't, and it was written for um, banquets for the gods, okay, in Babylonia. This is before Abraham, before anybody like that. And I looked at what was, what foods were used, and there, one of them was sesame seeds. So I realized that food had traveled so early um, throughout the Middle East. And I, when I, I went to the the Sterling Library at Yale, where the, this book is, these tablets are housed. And the archivist said that at that time they found blue and white china from China that was in Cyprus, which meant that as the sesame seeds were traveling, many other things were traveling. And that really was eye-opening for me. And then I realized that, you know, I always wondered, why do they have cardamom in Scandinavia? Well, they also have blue and white china, that same blue and white china with different designs, right? Different Mm. country. And I realized that the cardamom up to to, um, Denmark traveled with these, um, as, as food, other things which were traveling. And so, in a way, foods, and they had to be like chickpeas and other foods, were just a side, um, a side thing that was traveling with the merchants all over the world. And the other thing that was really mind-boggling for me was I learned that chickpeas have been around the Middle East for about 12,000 years. And um, so if there were sesame seeds and there were chickpeas, then of course there was hummus. And that hummus was the most ancient protein. And it's been found in Jordan. Um, and of course it, uh, chickpeas originated in Babylonia, but now 90% are grown in India. Um, 
but that that was the protein that was and that is and that will be as we in in the world to come so what what really was very important to me was the um the fact that foods that were so old we're rediscovering them for example chickpea flour was eaten um was written in the epics of gilgamesh which are 2000 years before this cookbook and you know we're redis- we're discovering gluten free now so that all these things that they were around the date jam pomegranate paste um Chickpeas. Yeah, I was just going to say that it was strong when you were saying that chickpeas are 12, there's 12,000 years of documentation of chickpeas. And I was thinking, well, maybe that's why just while to many people hummus is a relatively recent discovery, I certainly wasn't eating it as a kid. My kids have grown up with it now, but it's almost like it's reflected in our DNA historically, a natural predisposition to liking hummus. <laughs> that's I hadn't thought about that, but it's true. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who don't, but it 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 it, it it's a. I mean, yeah, you could probably write and you could write a next book all about hummus, right? Because it's eaten in different forms in so many different societies, and everyone has their variations or ways that they like it. But to modern Westerners, it's it's a newly rediscovered food, if you will. Right, and and we adore it. Everybody loves it. I think. I had an aunt in New York who did not adore it. Um, she called it Israeli food, but but that you know that that all speaks to it does help if you're for a lot of people it helps to be exposed to things young because what you're exposed to young can kind of fix in your palate. I mean, it depends how adventurous an eater you are. But she's never tasted mine with preserved lemon in it. <laughs> Sad, <laughs> sadly, she probably never will. But. <laughs> So are there, I love those stories, and I loved what you said in the book about the bagel kind of representing, because, you know, bagels have become, they used to be very associated with Jewish food and very associated really with New York. And now, you know, you find them in various quality versions around the world, and our people don't necessarily even think of them as Jewish food, just another form of, of bread. But you you were making that same connection that the bagel sort of represents an ancient tradition that's also come full circle to be something completely modern, and the shape of the bagel itself embodies that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm discovering newer things that you'll see. Well, and I, I, I learned about other – one is called brasados, and um, this is an, a, a, a medieval, probably earlier Jewish, sort of like a bagel. It's, it's boiled and it's baked, but it's slightly sweet. And today it's eaten for Lent in Provence because it's slightly sweet, but it's not so sweet. And what's it that called? You can, that, that it would be, let's say you gave up desserts for Lent. And, and it's you ate that really instead. Good. It's, I made a, uh, and the Jews make a Passover version that I think is delicious. The, and it, again, it's not sweet at all. It's a tiny bit sweet, but not really sweet. And it's got anise and um, orange, grated orange. But I'm sure this is a descendant of the bagel. And what's it called again? A brasado? Brasado. And then there's also something, I forget what it's called, in one little town in the Alps. Boiled and baked. 
and I can't decide. I really want to go to that little town, and I don't even know the name of it. Um, I learned about it many, many years ago. But, again, some, somebody was doing this, and it, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I suspect I understand the origin of it, which was that, um, and it's in the book, that there were people that boiled and baked because they thought that it would not constitute what food... In, in Jewish law, you're supposed to wash your hands before you eat food. But if you boiled and baked a something and you were going, you were a peddler and you were going out in the country, um, it wasn't con- in the same category as bread, which is baked. And you'd have to wash your hands before you um, ate a, p- a, a piece of a morsel of bread. However, in the countryside, when you were peddling, a lot of the water was not, you had to boil water before you used it, and you didn't want to get sick. So they created this role, but then the rabbis said, no, it is considered bread, so you can't, um, you can't use that. But then Jews liked it. This is in Poland, and they continued using it. Well, and I think that's a good reminder that many people don't realize, maybe even many Jewish people, that Jewish law for food goes back, again, to a very practical consideration, not just religious observance. Most of the rules track to things where there were health issues concerned, and it was an easy way to to get people to eat more safely at a time where things where it was easier to get poisoned from food and from water, right? Right, and and it's it's interesting that you mention that because during the medieval times, and these were not easy times in France, for example, um, and Jews, it was very difficult for Jews. They um, they they would because of this notion that you must. There was a law: you must wash your hands. Very often, they didn't get a plague that other people got. And the washing of the hands might have been the reason that they didn't get it. Yeah, I've heard that this was told to be also by a guide in in Mexico amongst the Mayans, that many of the Mayans survived um, the European um, colonists who came because they had a tradition of bathing and showering that the Europeans didn't, and that helped preserve, you know, that washed some of the germs away. Huh, very interesting. Have you ever heard that one? Uh, no, but it makes sense. The Mayans were really, <laughs> they were smart. <laughs> and may, so, who knows, but that's, <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, totally. It does. So I was going to ask you one more thing before we take a, another break and come back to hear your, your Julia moment, because I know you knew Julia. So from working on this book and all this sort of journey back in time and back to the the present, did it actually change your understanding? I mean, we were kind of talking about this, about religious traditions, or mostly it kind of connected up where they come from and how they've evolved? Well, I think that working on this book made me really in awe of how throughout history, when Jews were you know, life was not always easy for them. They were considered an under-human being. They were, in, like in France, they were locked in at night in little quarters that were terrible and let out in the morning. Um, and how 
the comfort, and it, you know, I think this is for everybody, the comfort of home, <coughs> the comfort what's theirs, um, and, and food ways are so much part of it. It made me realize how important they are. The other thing that um, struck me as I was writing this book when I went around the world was how Jews have always adapted foods to the dietary laws. Um, For example, I was in El Salvador, and there are 100 Jews in El Salvador. So a good number of them came for dinner with me at someone's home, and um, one of the women, it was a Shabbat dinner, and she brought, instead of potato pancakes, potato latkes, she brought... um, yucca latkes with cilantro cream. And to me, that really showed how Jewish food has wandered and adapted to its new home wherever they went. And, and, and sort of the resiliency of, Jude, of Judaism and of keeping those traditions. Gefilte fish varies all over the world. Um, people want to make that, and they'll adapt to it. And all over the United States, whatever's local. Um, And that was really something that struck me. And what also struck me is that I've been working on this for so many years, writing about Jewish food, and there's always something new. I mean, it is just amazing. Just like at the Passover Seder, there's always something new. And I think it's quite amazing and quite remarkable, and it's made for me, a very rich life to be able to learn these things and share them with other people as I did in uh, King Solomon's table. And with well, you, no, that, God. Yeah, no, I mean, that's terrific. And I, I too have stood in the same temple in Cochin in, in, in amazement in India that Jewish people were here and this temple still stands and I don't know how many people actually worship it in, in a place that is so unexpected to find that. But I did want to say, having you know spent some time with the book, which is both beautiful and mouth-watering, and to me, very sort of representative of the present interest in, in the influences and integration of Middle Eastern, or what is thought to be Middle Eastern food, that I want to make sure to give a shout-out to it, that it is a book that I think um, maybe just like the popularity of Adelengi books that speaks to people of any persuasion, and you certainly don't need to be Jewish or even be interested in having a Passover Seder to have this book be meaningful to you. And did, did you want to say a couple things about that? Well, yeah, I think that, I, I think that the book shows all of our past. And uh, to be perfectly honest, lots of chefs and a lot of loads of people that are not Jewish are 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 reading the book and enjoying the book. I mean, I'm just so happy that it's been as popular as it is. Um, yeah, because these are re- recipes that they're good recipes. Doesn't matter where they're from. They're they're and it's. I love recipes with a story, so that you know, whenever you sit down with one of these recipes or like, I don't know, some of my roasted pepper salads or my um, whatever, um, you, you know, you can share where they came from. 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the things, if you're a student of history and if you like the, the I mean, the, there's nothing more ancient than the Bible and going back before and to find a cookbook that takes you both so far back in time and then back to the present and around the world um, is a really special thing. So thank you for writing it. Well, thank you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Joan is going to reveal her Julia moment, and I'm really interested to hear what she's going to say. We'll be right back. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Joan, what's your Julia moment? Well, I first met Julia um, when I was very young and lived in Cambridge. And I met her at a friend at a somebody like one of my mentors' houses for a Harvard-Yale football game. She was there with her husband. And um, we really got to know each other through the years. Um, we had the same editor. We, you know, we met there. We met at... I, I, I know that on the road I'd see her. We'd always... She came with me when I was doing for one of the, I don't know what convention it was, but I was doing a Jewish um, tour of Philadelphia. And I said, Julia, why are you on this tour? And she said, well, I have a daughter-in-law or, or a niece, excuse me, or one of her nieces or nephews was married to somebody Jewish. And she said, and it's a good marriage. So she <laughs> wanted to learn more about it. And you're right. She was a, a, a longtime learner. And I realized that was such an important part for me growing up and growing through the years to see somebody like Julia who just kept doing what she did. And she would say to me, why retire? There's no reason to retire. And we, you know, we'd have an email correspondence. But the big Julia moment was not just a moment. Um, 
she wanted to meet my young son, who was like 16. She loved young men, as I'm taught, I'm sure you know. And In the most wholesome way, you mean, Joan, right? Yes, in the most wholesome way. And um, so we came to Cambridge with uh, my son David, who was, must have been 15 years old, even younger. And, um, and so she said, and I'm sure she said this to lots of other people, well, you can have tuna fish out of a can or we can go out. So, of course, we went out. <laughs> we went to the clam shack and had lunch. And she loved my son and started correspondence with him through email. Because I remember her saying to me when she had a hip replacement or something when she was 90 or, she, or before 90 maybe, she said, you know, I'm going to be in the hospital. I'm in bed for a while. I'm going to learn how to, to, um, to use the computer. And I loved that, just loved it. And um, anyway, but the moment was, it was a, I, I guess when my son and I were having lunch, we decided that she said she was coming to Washington. And I said, oh, well, and for her, her 90th birthday, tell, tell me if I'm wrong, when they were doing, opening the, um, the ex- exhibit of her kitchen, maybe you were at the dinner in my house. Well, it would have been, yeah, it's around there. I mean, it would have been too, no, no earlier than that, because the opening of the kitchen was around um, 2001, 2002. So, and her so 90th have, birthday was what year? Well, it, it would have been 2002. Well, no, that's right. That's right. That's right. If yeah. Okay. Works. So we. So I said to her um, when she said that she was coming to Washington, and I said, "You know what? I'll give you a party." So it was. I know it was late, late summer, and um, and she decided she only wanted a small party with all of her relatives and a few outsiders. So I invited. I can't remember. I invited um, Je- uh, Robert Siegel, and I invited Wolf Blitzer. And uh, a few friends of mine that I knew loved Julia. And, of course, I invited a male assistant of mine, and I said, you stick to Julia the whole night, which, of course, she loved because she loved talking to him. Anyway, and I, I was – it was a great evening, and I was scared to death to, to do this dinner for Julia Child. So I decided I would just make very simple, you're right, it was that year because my book, I was testing recipes for my New American Cooking cookbook. And I, I just, my son and I drove back from Martha's Vineyard in time to do this dinner and we spent the entire time thinking of a menu for her. So he was working for a chef that year this young man. So he said, let's get squash blossoms and he filled them with cheese. And then we said, let's just do the most beautiful um, tomato salad, which we did with all kinds of tomatoes and then corn on the cob with pesto butter. I don't know why I remember all this. And then just a fish with za'atar, which I thought she might not know then and preserved lemon. And then an apricot um, crumble. So it was very, very simple, and I think I'd made homemade bread, but I thought, and it was just such a good party because it was so simple and everybody didn't sit, they, they could sit wherever they wanted, and Julia loved it, and she talked to every young man that she could. 
Well, I love that you're, first of all, I think you gave us at least three Julia moments, which is great, but I think they, they fit so nicely into our theme of, of lifelong learning that relates to you and also both what the Seder and Easter traditions represent, which is the bringing together of three things, tradition, food, and family and friends, and that, that all being what, what is at an inherent meaning of life, I think. Well, you know, I, I think, too, that um, Judith Jones, who was my editor as well as Judith, and I mean, as Julia's, Julia and my own mother, who was also a lifelong learner and just passed away at 103, she was very happy that she lived longer than, um, than Julia, because they were probably about the same age. But, you know, they all, as you get older, these women are amazing because the, the 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 kind of mentorism that they do from their own lives and Julia just I love the way she just shook everything away and said well you know like that moment of hers when she dropped the what was it the chicken on the floor mm-hmm. you know she that's the way you should be you, you can't as a cook you can't be so nervous about everything and um and it's not just theatrical it's the way she lived her life and and uh, you know i think about her a lot actually um and i and, and i remember judith jones used to say that julia just got better and better that she wrote her recipes better um you know and and she filmed one of her segments of one oh, two segments i think of her tv shows in my kitchen and she was so easy. You know, that, that was the other thing. You know, she was really professional, but she had fun, and I loved that. And she loved life. Well, that's a, a good ending, because we at the Foundation are always making sure that people have fun and learn at the same time. And I think that uh, describes our conversation, and I think it describes King Solomon Table. And with that, we're going to wrap up, and I'm going to thank everyone for listening and Joan for being with us. So let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact joyaschildfoundation.org. Better yet, tell us about some of your holiday food traditions with your family. Uh, you can like us on Facebook, search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter. Our handle's at Julia Child JCF. Or you can follow me. I'm at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. We're also on Instagram. You can search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. To learn more about Joan Nathan and her work, as well as her upcoming appearances, go to joannathan.com. You can check out her events page to see some dates for her upcoming book tour for King Solomon's Table. And you can follow her on social media. Just search at Joan underscore Nathan on Twitter and Instagram. And on Facebook, just put in at Jewish Cooking. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. And thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lawrence Alkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. If you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe. If you like the podcast, please give us a review. That really helps people discover the show. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Joya's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. 
Food Radio is supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.